Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Gaming Podcast. It's a very special podcast this time around. It's the first of our two-part Game of the Year podcast where we'll be looking back at some of the games that came out this year, kind of what we were enjoying playing, some of the things that might have disappointed us and, and what stood out, and maybe some of what we're looking forward to in 2019 as well. Uh, I am joined today by Owen Duffy. Hello. Hey Owen, how are you doing? I am not bad at all. I am uh, caught up in the frenzy of Christmas shopping. Yeah, so we're, uh, to give some context, I don't know when this will go up, we're, this is the 11th of December, uh, so hopefully it will be up not long after that, but it is, it's kind of rush time for Christmas at the moment. We're also joined by Richard Jansen-Parks. Richard, how are you doing? Hello there, I'm doing... I'm doing pretty well, actually. I'm doing all right. Excellent. Have you been caught up in Christmas? I, I, I'm not in the middle of my Christmas shopping, but I probably should be, so that's worrying. <laughs> ah, it's fine. You know, you've still got probably 13 days until you really need to suddenly go, oh, crap, I need to get out and, and find something. But that's... Yeah, the 23rd. Yeah, fine, exactly. Right? That's yeah. why next day delivery exists. That's why it was invented. Absolutely. So it can arrive roughly at 6pm on Christmas Day and you go, well, it still counts. Yeah. And yep. we're also joined by Alex Sinichkina. How are you doing, Alex? I'm good. Thanks. Hi. And yeah, Christmas shopping sucks. Don't go. If you live in London, don't go to Oxford Street. It's it's apocalypse there. Oh god. Everything yeah. has exploded. People are crazy and insane. Avoid. Save yourselves. That's kind of London all year round in some <laughs> respects, right? Oh, that's, that is also true. Yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll roll on with some Game of the Year chat, but I think we'll have kind of a widespread of things. I know that, uh, Richard, you're kind of obviously more on the role-playing side of things. I don't know if you want to kick us off with some of the stuff you've been enjoying this year. Ooh, well, so, yeah, it's been an interesting year from the role-playing side of things. We've not had that many, I think... A huge mainstream standout sort of core or rule sets are released, but it's been a pretty good year for 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 supplements and expansions. One of the the big ones in terms of both uh, hype and also actual uh, physical size was the um, reissued Mask of Nyarlathotep, and I'm sure that Matt had a wonderful time spell-checking all of the times that word was used in my review of it. <laughs> oh, it uh, was my, my biggest challenge until Owen's review of... I can't even pronounce it, Owen. It's, wow. Well, I, I'm not even going to butcher it. That's very impressive. But yes, yes. Um, I've got no thought. idea if that's correct. It sounds vaguely like Gaelic, but there you go. <laughs> it sounds right. It sounds right. But yeah, that was a... That was a I think a very... So the original Mask of Nyarlathotep... Uh, campaign came out, I think, around 30 years ago, and it's sort of been viewed as one of the um, one of the best and most famous RPG campaigns of all time. The a reissue uh, this year is, I think, at around a thousand pages, and the full print version comes in at about a hundred dollars, which is a lot to pay for a couple books, but it was a really impressive piece of work. And this is, it's kind of notorious for being unbelievably brutal, right, Nyala Fatep? It's kind of, everybody yes. dies all the time. Well, it's um, Call of a Cthulhu, which is, is famed for both killing players and driving them insane at a fairly equal rate. Um, you are doing very, very, very well if you finish the campaign with only your second character, as opposed to your third, fourth, fifth, or, you know, twentieth. Um, they did tone it down, the lethality, slightly. In fact, the entire thing was 
it's a pretty substantial update, um, both in terms of the rules and also the 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 content. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have read old stuff based on H.P. Lovecraft, but it was um, even being published in the eighties. It to certainly we could charitably say that it doesn't quite work too well with um, a modern a sensibilities. There was a fair amount of uh, of reliance on on stereotypes that are rather distasteful these days, but that's fortunately been uh, done. They've done a very good job of cleaning that all up and uh, are making things much more uh, palatable to modern tastes. Richard, do you feel like it was a, a stronger year for kind of expansions or like supplements for, for role-playing games that have been out a while? Obviously, you're saying Nyarlathotep there for Couple of Cthulhu, both of which have been out, you know, decades hmm. before. Were there any kind of like new uh, role-playing games that caught your eye that you thought were kind of did anything new or, or so different with being, the genre? In fact, the, the two new uh, rule sets, I think, that stood out um, were both updates to to older games, in particular the uh, Warhammer Fantasy RPG uh, came out this this summer, and that was its fourth edition. Again, that's another game that spans back to, uh, to before I was born. Um, and I think that an awful lot of the the mainstream games that that, that there wasn't anything particularly um, you know brand new, except on the more indie side of things, there was lots of really. I mean, it, it, it's in some way that's the way it seems to go. That lots of the um, the truly original stuff comes from the indie side of things. Um, Spire from uh, a Rowan Rook and Deckard is a a beautiful weird RPG where. Uh, the players play as dark elves in a sort of weird, a techno magic a city that's with heavy themes of sort of oppression and basically you play as terrorists, which is a a really interesting take on the sort of the traditional fantasy, you know, action and adventure genre. And, and on top of that, there was, um, in fact, it's it's cheating slightly because it's not actually officially out yet. But uh, Starcrossed is a really interesting RPG. Mm. I, I think that Owen's played as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, you know, I love seeing uh, themes explored in games that typically aren't explored in games. So, uh, Starcrossed is um, a, a, a romance story generator that uses a, a Jenga tower, isn't it, Richard? That's uh, that's its sort of key core mechanism. Yeah, and really, that's the. It's a really interesting crossover between what I would say is an RPG and what is sort of a, a pure a storytelling game. Because, as Owen says, there's a, a Jenga tower that is really the only sort of part of, of mechanics of rules in the entire game to a certain extent. Um, so there, there are no dice, there's no GM or dungeon master. It's a, a strictly a two-player game where the, the two players take the roles of, of people who are... The, the only rules are that you have to be two people who are heavily attracted to each other, but for some reason, whether that be a literal reason or a societal or cultural a reason, you can't be be together. And as you progress this story, you draw bricks out of the Jenga tower. Though officially, I think they can't use the word Jenga, so it's just a tower of wooden blocks. <laughs> um, and if the tower ever falls down, then your characters act on their impulses, on their attraction to each other, and damn the consequences. 
and that's a really fascinating uh, mechanic because quite often towards the end of the game you actually kind of want the tower to fall over. Yeah, I suppose if it stayed standing you would just kind of keep it all inside and it would just become a kind of loaded conversation that never goes anywhere. Well, there are... Um, so. so, the the number of bricks that you draw before the game ends, essentially, um, acts as a kind of score. And if you manage to draw a lots of bricks before the tower c- comes down, then you get a happier ending, is perhaps the way to, to put it. And the idea behind the game, I suppose, is that you need to have a good enough a reason to stay apart that it does make sense for you for your characters to think that the tower should stand that they should not be be together and one of the things that i really loved about it was that um anytime your character speaks in the game you have to put your you have to be in physical contact with the tower and uh you know at first that's you know just um fairly inconsequential because the tower is quite sturdy and solid and there's not much risk of it falling over. As you get into the, the later rounds though, it becomes this really fragile, delicate thing and it's, it really kind of um, kind of sums up the, the feeling of this relationship that you have with the, the other player's character. I thought it was really just fantastic in the, the tension that it brought to the game. And because even in a game of, of Jenga where the stakes aren't exactly huge, there is always a tension when the tower's getting really, really, really unstable. And that does translate to sort of the feeling that your characters would actually be feeling if you were them. Sort of the, the tension and dread, but also you kind of can't wait for it to fall over and it's exciting. Have any of you played Dread, uh, which is another kind of Jenga or wooden block powered RPG? I don't know how it compares to that. It's the only other kind of role playing game I can think of that uses a Jenga tower as a central kind of mechanic. You know, I have heard of it, but I've not actually played it. I've played it once, and the difference I would say is that, particularly because it's a two player game, uh, Starcross just feels um, quite a bit more intimate to me, um, quite a bit more personal. Um, and also, obviously, it's a very different theme. You know, Dread mm. is a, a horror game where if the tower collapses, then your character dies. Here, there are some real consequences that you might have to live with, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a fantastic <laughs> little, little I like indie the RPG. idea that um, the, the implication that a falling in love is has more consequences than uh, being being murdered. It depends who you're falling in love with. <laughs> I suppose. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, I can't really think of a very good transition away from Jenga and, and love and death. So, Alex, I'm just going to throw over to you. What have you been enjoying this year? What's been uh, kind of hitting your table most? Oh, am I allowed to spoil an upcoming mag review? Uh, of course, yes. Not least because I have no idea when I'm going to edit this, so the magazine will <laughs> probably be out. Possibly. So I wanted to have a quick chat about Everdell. So um, Everdell is a worker placement game uh, that... Is sort of if, as kids, you guys uh, read by any chance, uh, read well novels by Bran Jacks, I think the author's I, name I is. I loved those. Yes. Yes. So there was lots of um, woodland creatures and adventures, and it was kind of a fantasy medieval theme. And it was just, it was, you know, there were stakes and there was drama, but it always gave gave this sort of warm and nice and cozy feeling and it it just it was lots of joy to read those books. Well, Everdale, I don't think it associated with that in any way, but it's that feeling exactly. So the premise of the game is that you are playing as one of the woodland creatures or actually there are turtles there or tortoises, I don't know if they can count as woodland creatures, but let's not pick on that. Um, but you are sort of building your little town 
around the roots of uh, Evertree. And uh, mechanically, it's not anything fantastically original. You go on places on the board, uh, you pick up cards, you build up things. But it's sort of, it's a really feel-good kind of game. It's not at all confrontational and it's it's one of those games where I don't even mind losing it all because it's all about building your town and seeing how it develops and there is a little mechanic that if you build a building, a construction, they're called in the game, every construction has an occupant and if you have happen to have um, an occupant's cards in your hands or available in the market, you can build them for free, which is a very nice little uh, engine building thing that doesn't doesn't sort of spiral into anything major you can't really run away with that and get ahead of the points but it's sort of a little nice bonus little extra action that you can do that if you planned ahead that sort of feels really really nice um, but one thing apart from that that i wanted to point out about the game is that is components and components is not something that i usually highly rate games on if if they have nice components good enough if they feel good that's excellent but it's but it's not something that you know if the cards are a bit crappy and the artwork is not up to scratch i'm, I'm but it plays nice i'm never going to overlook it but in this case there it just complements it so well and and the thing that i love so they have uh, the little resources that you come and collect and you have your little twigs you have your resin you have your pebbles and you have your berries and they're all made of different materials that are not exactly the materials you're picking up but they're tactile and then when you touch them tactilely tactilely um writer should know these words but anyway <laughs> Uh, they feel like the elements you're picking up. So the little berries are um, a little bit squishy. Uh, the pebbles are very shine and smooth and they found next to the river and as you pick them up, they're smooth as in the water has been flowing for them and it sort of made them all nice, shiny and smooth. And then you got your very sh shiny see-through resin and sort of um, tweaks that also have a texture on them. And it's just so very pleasant. And... You know, again, it's it's not the most original game, and it's not the one that I think uh, mechanically is going to blow your mind, but it is an incredibly good time to play. It is on a rainy day, which we get a lot here in UK, <clears throat> Rolls Royce, <laughs> um, this is a perfect game. It, I think in my review I said something along like sitting under the warm covers, having a warm cup of tea, and that's exactly that. It is, it is unbelievably beautiful, it, it plays very nicely for worker placement game, and it's so friendly and cozy and sweet and yeah it's it's out of the games that I've played recently it was my absolute favorite and I keep returning to it again and again and again. Nice. Do you think that it's been kind of the year of the like the red wallish kind of animal fantasy world? Obviously, I think one big thing that uh, I've only had very brief interaction with it, and I think Owen, you've played it uh, a little bit, is is Root, um, mm. which is again kind of slots into that fuzzy little animals having a kind of quite serious war allegory. <laughs> I don't think Everdale goes quite that dark, but it's. They seem to be that seems to be the theme of the year in some ways. Yeah, Roots is uh, is really interesting. Um, it's this asymmetrical war game uh, with some kind of really deep kind of tactical and strategic elements, but with these cute little fuzzy animals. <laughs> um, and it's got some uh, some very kind of characterful um, artwork with lots of kind of muted woodland tones. So yeah, I guess that is a, a recurring um, theme if it's uh, if it's also in Everdell. 
Yeah. Um, this is not the best game out there, but it's the one of the similar notes that I've also played this year called Barbarian Battlegrounds. And it's all about this uh, barbarian bears going into the camps and stealing things and attacking things. And it's kind of... It's a cheeky dice rolling, dice placement game. But the thing is, it's it's it could be quite violent if you think about the implications, but it's all well and good because they are cuddly cute bears and they're a lot of adorable and funny and roll your eyes bear puns in the game. So it you know, it makes it all better and it makes it all fuzzier and cuddlier just by using bears instead of I don't know, some violent Vikings or something like that. <laughs> I feel like the wordplay because isn't in Everdale there's like the rat scallion or something like that yes yes there is yeah there uh, there is a single player variant where you are sort of not fighting against him there is that's the thing about Everdale there's no outright fighting or in conflict your whole game is about preparing for winter and changing of seasons and the only bad thing rat scallion does is he sort of impedes your preparations and steal things from you and that's the worst Thing that it can happen to you in Everdale, someone can steal something. <laughs> Whereas if you wander into the woods of Root, you'll just kind of get either taken into kind of the capitalist industry of like the Marquis de Cat or kind of shanked by a vagabond at some point, I think. Uh, Owen, what have you been playing? What's been kind of taking a fancy this year? I think I know what might be coming up, judging by your Twitter feed. Yeah, well, uh, certainly the game that I've been playing the most over the past couple of months has been uh, a little thing you might not have heard about, Keyforge, <laughs> um, which is the new card game from Richard Garfield, who made this thing called Magic and another thing called Netrunner, Never and heard of him. Uh, you know he's, he's he's done some things, um, but yeah, um, so I am a. a, a guess you could call me a recovering Magic player. Um, <laughs> I uh, kind of really like kind of strategy card games like the game of thrones game as well uh, the final fantasy game and uh keyforge does some quite interesting things one in its uh, kind of distribution mechanism so instead of going out and buying random booster packs and seeing what cards you get or uh instead of buying kind of chapter upgrade packs like in a living card game uh like android netrunner you buy pre-constructed decks which are assembled from a pool of cards by a computer algorithm um, and in theory, all of the decks are meant to contain combinations of cards that let you do interesting, powerful things and pull off combos and just kind of find interesting tactical things to do. Um, I have eight decks and I've played them against each other in various um, kind of permutations and combinations. Only two out of maybe about 30 or 35 games have fallen quite flat. Um, so I think that bodes pretty well. And um, I mean, I think that the one thing about Keyforge is everyone seems to focus on this uh, kind of algorithmic side of it, this idea that you buy the, the pre-constructed decks. What they're overlooking is that as a game, it's pretty interesting. It um, has this system where instead of paying mana or gold or other resources to kind of summon stuff to the battlefield, you um, can play whatever you like, but every card in your deck belongs to one of a, a kind of collection of houses that are doing battle in this game. Um, and you name one of those houses at the start of your turn, and then you can play any number of cards or use any number of those cards as long as they are of that house. So it means that you're never stuck in a situation like in Magic, where if you draw poorly on your first couple of turns, you just sit there while your opponent wins the game without you having the opportunity to do anything. Um, you're never starved of resources, and you can usually do something interesting on just about every turn. Um, I think it's just really um, something a bit special 
I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes from here. Yeah, I kind of fall into the camp with you where I absolutely love playing Magic most of the time, other than some of the times where, as you say, the kind of mana system feels a little bit archaic at points. But the thing that always I just didn't have time for, I didn't really feel kind of deep enough to do was the was the deck building. You know, I would pick up, I particularly like the dual decks that they put out that always feel like these kind of self-contained one-on-one battles. Mm. But Keyforge... Into, I've, I think I've played with around the same amount of decks as you, probably around 8 eight to 10, somewhere in that range. And they felt relatively balanced. I mean, some of the cards in there are they're designed specifically to kind of wipe the table of creatures or things like that. So I think the house Dis is particularly kind of devastating at points. It goes for these big kind of table clearing assaults. Yeah, and my wife nearly broke up with me when <laughs> I... Uh... Yeah, that's I, a sign of a to, good game, I think. Yeah, well, I went. No, no, it was. It was nothing to do with the game. It was all my fault. I went to play one of those big uh, disc board wipes, and before I put the card down, I said, "You're ready for this." And yeah, so just let that sink in for a moment. I'm going to edit out um, that applause. It's it's not worthy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think the. The, the thing about not having to build your decks is really interesting. I've spoken to a couple of Magic playing friends who said that really kind of killed the game for them, killed their interest in it, because kind of coming up with strategies and expressing themselves through the decks that they build mm. is a big part of the appeal of a game like Magic for them. Yeah, in fact, um, that's, that's that's kind of how I feel about it. I've actually, I've, I've only very, very recently jumped onto the Magic train some 25 years late, um, because they finally released a really good online client uh, for what it's worth. Um, and 90% of my fun with Magic comes from putting together weird decks that do mm. dumb things, and that's kind of one of the things that's maybe stopped me from from dropping cash on, on Keyforge. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely an argument there. The the thing that, you know, I, I like Magic, I enjoy it, I just don't have the time or the money to play it at a serious kind of level. Um, but the, the thing that sort of... Um, slightly spoiled it for me is this phenomenon of net decking and that's where mm. you have a, a deck that does well at a high level tournament and then everyone at your local game store starts trying to collect those same cards and play the same deck and use the same strategies um, and to me that sort of um, can slightly negate that sort of uh, kind of uh, discovery element that you have in, in card games like Magic. Um, yeah, just to jump on sort of your conversation, I've never played Magic, and I never, and I was a bit too scared to get into Netrunner. It seemed to be too complicated. But just to add to your conversation about building decks, I've recently really got into Hearthstone, which is a digital card game from Blizzard. But it's also very much about building a variety of different decks with different characters and battling each other. And while Hearthstone mechanically is very simple and absolutely fantastic, it can be so frustrating when you know that someone won just because they bought better cards and you've been relying on just randomly, you know, opening loot boxes pretty much and seeing uh, what you get. So I've bought when did I buy? I I bought first Keyforge deck this weekend actually. <laughs> Clearly looking forward to this podcast and uh, played it and I think part of sort of kind of kind of the ah, relief and enjoyment of it came that the deck was just perfect for what it did and it I could immediately see all the combos that went out of it and it was it was kind of almost like relaxing because you didn't have to 
you didn't have to worry that someone on the other side is going to win just because they spent a lot of money on this thing or um, they've play- they have more experience of the game in general and the better. It was just you against this deck and both of you learning at the same time and figuring it out how to use it to win. And that was really great. That's just very simple and great. Yeah, I think there's something interesting in the there's not a sense of discovery in terms of oh these cards go well together like you would in magic you'd find kind of the combos that you're putting together yourselves but instead it's like a oh for well at least for most people who aren't just gonna go through the decks and be like well this is trash i'm gonna chuck it there's that discovery of well i have this deck now i'm just going to learn this one deck inside out as you would with magic but you've put the deck together yourself but i really enjoyed kind of those first few games where it's seeing what comes up and going oh that's really interesting and then in like subsequent games kind of anticipating the cards that i knew were in there and and knowing but because of the well it's not mana it's the the house system it's more of a well at least i found it to be more of like a moment to moment game anyway you're not necessarily Mm. building up Mm. mana for the card that you know is somewhere in your deck it's a okay here's what i have in my hand i can potentially use all of these cards i don't need to wait and build and so on it's more of a reactive kind of and that feeds into that kind of forging keys system as well because you're kind of tug of warring over um uh, the amber uh, in the center which why they can just spell it with an a i don't know it was an absolute <laughs> nightmare oh you mean a yamba it always makes me think of the um the northern lights trilogy or his dark materials yes. with mm. demons, demons. Oh my god, that was a headache. Just, just <laughs> use A's or E's. It's interesting that you bring up the the amber system because I think that's the other thing that really distinguishes Keyforge from Magic in that um, you're not actually trying to kind of kill your opponent in this game. You're trying to build up a, a pool of resources uh, that lets you forge keys, and if you forge three keys, then you win the game. Um, so really, what it does is it means that you are building an engine to try and generate this amber while you're doing it there's there still is a significant element of combat to the game but really what the opponent's trying to do is just kind of kick bits off your engine as you're building it so you get to situations where you've developed a a kind of winning board state but you only have kind of two turns to to try and get the most out of it before the opponent does something horrible usually involving a discard and um and just takes it away from you again yeah and i i think it does although it it's kind of it made you know headlines for its kind of procedurally generated titles that they then had to start banning from tournaments because there was some very <laughs> not not necessarily lewd but definitely kind of a I can see why you probably want wouldn't want those combinations of words. I think yeah. Wang the easily bruised was Wang quite the lewd. Easily bruised, <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't there um the farmer of racism? The farmer of racism. Like yeah. <laughs> I've also seen a lot yeah, of things um, to do with like things of boys so sort of like prince of boys and things like that so yeah i mean but no kind of swear words or no really 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 insidious words creeping their way through the filter um but yeah you can see why maybe they wouldn't want wang the easily bruised being the kind of top deck of a tournament (laughs) (laughs) i'm so immature i shouldn't laugh at that (laughs) i think they've said that if you get one of those decks they'll replace it with two for free but i mean anyone who gets one of those is going to hang on to it because that's going to be gold dust on ebay in 10 years time isn't it those of you on the thought of decks those of you who have uh, several to choose on have you found that there's one that is objectively better than all of your rest when you've been testing them out 
Well, Owen, I don't know about you, but like I say, I've I found that at least the the kind of eight eight to ten, however many I was playing around with, I found them to be, you know, pretty well balanced against each other. Maybe it was the people I was playing. Um, just happened to gel with those decks better but we never had a match there were matches that would you know skew slightly more one way than the other but there was never a kind of one where people absolutely flattened the other person in four rounds or anything like that yeah um, I mean I, I, as I say I've only played kind of two games that have fallen quite flat the I, I would say that the decks seem to be balanced but there are certainly decks that will appeal to different types of players if you're a very aggressive player then you might favor uh kind of houses like brobnar who are uh, kind of giants who bash things over the head or untamed which is all about kind of big scary beasties that just charge in and rip people apart um if you prefer something a bit sneakier or a bit more um kind of underhand you might like shadows or Dis or even uh, logos who are kind of the the scientists and the alchemists who do all sorts of weird and wonderful things um there's one deck that i have that has a combo in it that i particularly enjoy which um forces the opponent to choose a particular house on their next turn and then forbids them from choosing that house on their next turn um so you're forcing them to play with like access to none of their cards for a turn and even if it doesn't kind of advance me at all in the at a particular stage in the game i love playing it just to be a complete um choose a word that i probably can't say on this podcast but it's just <laughs> it, it feels so good to, to do it and just to see see the look on your opponent's face when they realize what's what's just happened yeah that's the the overwhelming feeling i came away from keyforge was this isn't you know it's probably not gonna be the same tournament level as magic i mean magic the 10 million dollar tournaments they're doing next year is kind of ridiculous by itself but i don't think it's ever going to be to that level because to some degree it's it's a little too rigid for a lot of the kind of high play or like high level play people but it's fun like i've it's maybe the game i've had the most pure fun with this year just kind of whether it's kind of seeing those names or kind of seeing the artwork or discovering the cards in there or kind of seeing what comes up or just that tug of war over the em- uh, amber uh, amber 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 um i just it's it's quick it's fun and you just pop open a deck it's man it's really good and i can see it having legs i thought because i think uh, i haven't played it myself but i know that uh, dan jolin who reviewed the other unique game which is discover lands unknown he kind of came away a little uh, i think deflated by it um it didn't seem to to have the legs that i think it could have had uh, whereas Keyforge genuinely seems like this could be a you know a really interesting thing that that lasts and goes on. Awesome, cool. Everyone agrees with me. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, what else has everyone been playing? Is there anything else you'd kind of you you want to mention? Anything else that stood out to you, or any kind of big disappointments? Anything you were looking forward to that maybe didn't live up to to what you would have hoped? Can I give a quick shout out to my little scythe? So, um. Am I making this up? Was I f- one of the tabletop gaming games of the of the coming year? So I think I believe Scythe was it was our game that, because we only introduced the game game of the year feature last year, and it came out in two thousand and sixteen. I think technically it was the mm. kind of game we wish we'd had these awards for the previous year. All oh, right, uh, but yeah, I mean, Cypher's brilliant. I mean, it got an editor's yeah. choice in the magazine. I think that generally people obviously are are very big on Scythe. Yeah, no, Scythe is fantastic. The only problem with Scythe that I think is it's a whole day affair, or at least it has been the whole day affair whenever I played it, because it involved a long setup, a long preparation, and a long play, 
And uh, my little scythe, despite it vaguely sounding like my little pony, <laughs> and again, returning back to the theme of cute animals, it is a younger player, I hesitate to say kids, but a young, but a game that is more suitable for younger players. But it is one of the very few games that I think were kind of made more accessible and more uh, younger player friendly that you just somehow managed to retain the essence of what you love about Scythe. And it's bizarre because, you know, there's one theme of, you know, Eastern Europe and industrialism and it's all very heavy and very full of mechs and robots and fighting and territories and it's all kind of grim and heavy. And here is the complete opposite is a game about with cute animals and again collecting uh, resources and friendships and pie fights. And at the same time, it's just so well done. It it just understood so very well the the core of what was so good about Scythe and distilled it to its absolute essence without actually losing any kind of thinking that you act you have to do there is a lot less bells and whistles and kind of little tiny fiddly things that you have to do in scythe and they've been simplified and i actually think that's for the better and it plays so much faster it looks fantastic on the board it is it can be incredibly strategic and you know you can sit there and scratch your brain as much as you want and yeah i i absolutely loved it it's it's kind of i think you know if it has gotten to the point where I think if someone wants to play a game and be like, can we play Scythe? I'd be like, how about we play this first? Because this is quicker <laughs> and this is more fun. And can I throw a pie at you? <laughs> so yeah. So yeah, that's shout out to my little Scythe because it was an absolute joy. I haven't played it, but I just love the fact that it was co-designed by the, the designer and his, uh, his eight-year-old yeah, daughter. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so much better for it. I think, yeah, that input was just... The game would not have been without the input of the daughter. It, it's so great. I think actually, I think Jamie Stegmaier uh, said that they reached out to to Hasbro to use My Little Pony because when it was a print and play, I think it might have won the Board Game Geek print and play contest or or been named the best in their Golden Geek Awards. Anyway, um, mm. I think they reached out to Hasbro and asked if they could use My Little Pony and Equestria uh, um, and were basically turned down. But I feel like My Little Scythe actually is a, a much better title than something like Scythe My Little Pony Edition or anything like that. My Little Scythe yeah, just has this kind definitely. of like weird dark edge to it where it's like, oh, right, okay, you know, bladed implement, but small and for kids. Send them out into the fields <laughs> to read cute. porn. <laughs> yeah. You know, I might, I might have to pick that up because I, I love Scythe, but it's really hard to find time to play it. So if I can get that so sort of same experience but done in what a 60 minutes as opposed to three hours yeah yeah that sounds oh, that sounds great yeah exactly and another thing that i, I kind of want to shout out it for is that it's it's not sort of right in your face or on the nose but it does have this little just super nice message that making friends with people makes you all better and progresses you through life or through the game and it's 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 like it's not there you won't really notice it but it, as you play through a game you're like ah oh, when i do nice things for other people i get nice things too so uh, i'm gonna make friends and do all the good things and yeah it's just all 
again, very friendly and sunny and how one came from another. It's just such a big transition that it doesn't actually compute in my brain, but it's great. <laughs> yeah, a game about uh, learning to maybe appreciate other people rather than just flat out fighting with them might be the most needed game of 2018 in mm. so many ways. Mm -hmm. But uh, have any of you played the new Azul yet, the stained glass of Sintra? I have not. No, but having played the original, I'm very jealous and want to get my hands on this one. Well, uh, I will. I will wax lyrical for a second because I I really like yes, it. Yes, please. Um, it is it is Azul. It's kind of like a, a remix of Azul. So it's got that that really interesting drafting from the center where you take one color and the rest go in the middle. Um, that's kind of untouched. Only it's these weird look. They look like, like cough sweets. If the original Azul tiles looked like kind of starburst, these look like cough sweets. But it's just. It's, I've kind of compared it to people to the difference between King Domino and Queen Domino in that it's recognisably the same game at its core, but there are just little additions, little changes here and there that make it a slightly, slightly more complex game. Um, it doesn't necessarily make it better, it doesn't make it worse, it just makes it, it gives it a different feel. It's a lot more variable instead of building up the kind of sets of matching tiles like an original is all. Here you start with strips that are different, a mix of different colours. But you've got a, a glazier uh, that travels across the top of these strips and you can only drop tiles into strips to the right of your glazier who then moves to the strip you've most recently put panes into. So there's this really interesting kind of mix of building up combos by completing strips which then flip over and score everything to the right of them. So you want to kind of complete things to the right in order to build up these combos when you score one and get all the others but you also then have to account for having more and more limited options each each round and so it gives it a really different kind of pace and and flow and feel to us all and i think they they can really kind of stand side by side the only shame is whereas king domino and queen domino you could mix together so there was kind of the value in only both i think some people f will find that these are a little similar Kind of that central drafting thing is is essentially untouched across the two games, but there is enough different, enough new that I think you know they they do stand alone. And also, it's nothing like Sagrada. People saw that it was about stained glass, and they were like, "Oh, oh, they're ripping off Sagrada." <laughs> and it's like, have you ever seen how many games are about fantasy sword people hitting kind of goblin-looking <laughs> blobs? <laughs> sort of two two games about stained glass and they're completely different come on you know one's got dyson uh, <laughs> well you know they're completely different games it's a different game to sagrada it's a different game to azul but it's more of it's more like azul than it is sagrada but uh yeah i would say it's worth checking out for sure if you enjoyed enjoyed azul originally i'll have to, to give it a look so what else has uh, been interesting you this year owen um well the last uh, month or so, I've been playing quite a lot of Blue Lagoon, which is the new game from Reiner Knizia. Um and it is it, it feels really like a, a kind of ticket to ride, carcass on weight kind of uh, kind of ideal gateway game for people just getting into the hobby. Um, it's all about um, Polynesian tribes trying to uh, kind of explore and settle on a chain of islands. But what I really enjoy about it is just how much um, kind of strategy and how much competition it gets out of a really simple set of rules. So I don't know if any of, uh, if any of you folks have played it. Yes, I have. I like right. it very, very much. On your turn, all you do is take one of your uh, little chips representing your tribes people and you put it somewhere on the board to claim that 
piece of territory. But um, you score points in so many different ways. You score points for having um, kind of uh, your, your tribes people spread across all the different islands in the game. But you also score points for having the majority of tribes people on each individual island. So right there, that's a, a real conflict between those two objectives. Um, you've also got uh, uh, resources that you collect that you can uh, score sets of. Um, so if you get kind of three or four of the same types of resources, whether it's kind of bamboo or coconuts or, or whatever you, you can get your hands on, um, it's going to rack up some points for you. But you'll also score for having a diverse mix of all the different types of resources. So again, it's kind of forcing you in two different directions and kind of making you kind of choose how you want to score, think about what's viable for you, what you can you can pull off with the, the situation that you're on the board. And it actually becomes just ridiculously competitive because if you and an opponent are both going going after the same areas you can cut each other off it's uh, it's got a kind of root building element to it as well and when it happens especially if it's kind of towards the last few turns where you're you're just about to pull something off and you get just denied by an opponent it's absolutely infuriating in the best kind of way um so yeah just a, a fantastic little kind of family uh kind of casual strategy game i love it yeah it's uh it's really really good and i like you say there it has that ticket to ride thing of like i've got to the end of turns and then just been like i'm i'm one counter away i can't get this i can't kind of join up these two routes i can't get this resource because i you know had to go around the edge of someone else and just got screwed basically Mm -hmm. and the really great thing to me is that once you've done that there's a second round where you reset the board and go again so if someone has done that to you in the first round you're going to get them they are flipping dead next time around you make that sound really threatening i can't help it i'm from glasgow (laughs) this lovely family game where you want to kill each other (laughs) those those are the best family games it does feel like rana canizia particularly this year i feel like has been has kind of been back on it like i Again, I don't know if any of you have played Yellow and Yangtze, uh, his kind of like spiritual successor to, to Tigris and Euphrates. Mm. I've heard very good things. Yeah, so it's, it's again, sort of like Azul, it's, it's recognisably built off Tigris and Euphrates, but it has, well, it has hexes instead of squares. There are kind of like superficial differences, but it's a little less brutal. Um, and again, it will be to some people's taste, it will be not to other people's taste that really like those kind of absolute bastard moments of declaring war and completely destroying someone uh, and them having to then struggle their way back up it's a little softer than that i would say um but i think i think i prefer it because it's it's just a little friendly it's a little easier to introduce people to i love tigers and euphrates but trying to get people to play it it's a game that seems really simple and then is not simple at all uh, when you're trying to work out the strategy of it whereas yellow and yangtze feels a little more manageable a little easier to recover um wars aren't as kind of as big a deal and i really didn't expect it to be as good as it is i kind of expected it to be like okay you know it's been a while since tigers and euphrates came out it'll be one of these kind of we put this back out kind of slightly different and whatnot but actually it's it's really really good it's really really good and between that and blue lagoon i just think kenitsi is killing it at the moment it's yeah it's fantastic looking ahead to next year is there anything on on your radars that you're kind of really uh, anticipating that you're really kind of itching to play or to to see more of richard we'll start with you 
perhaps the biggest thing uh, that is coming out uh, next year on the role-playing side of things is one of the biggest things that came out uh, this year but that we couldn't really uh, consider for game of the year type things because it was the pathfinder 2 playtest was was released uh, this year the second edition of the second biggest fantasy uh, role-playing game out there the they've been playtesting it since august and hopefully the the finished a second edition should be out at Gen Con this year, I believe, so sometime in August. That should be really interesting. It'll be especially interesting to see if Pathfinder manages to keep its place as the slightly more complex uh, cousin of Dungeons and Dragons, which is kind of the the, the niche it holds uh, uh, right now. They definitely seem to be uh, taking nods from D&D, though, particularly the 5th edition. They seem to be slimming it down just a little, or at least streamlining it, let's say. Yeah, they've they've streamlined things quite a bit, but, I mean, if you make a whale slightly smaller, you still wouldn't want, want one in your, in your fish tank. Uh, it's, it's still... Uh, certainly the playtest rules are still crunchy and dense and, and complex, and you can make weird and wonderful things are with it which is frankly exactly what you want from 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 pathfinder you you want something where you can head into the game with some strange uh, a character concept and make it kind of work and how do you find it compares to starfinder because starfinder was it was built off pathfinder but it had some some improvements in some areas but then it also threw in this kind of entirely other starship battling system that kind of took some nods from x-wing and things like that so they made that even more of a i guess a space whale uh, in some ways <laughs> but but slimmed out in other areas so have you sort of noticed anything from starfinder coming across into the the second pathfinder edition certainly some of the things but yeah it's definitely quite different uh, starfinder is feels like a slightly tweaked and updated uh, version of the original uh, Pathfinder rules. A Pathfinder 2e is very, very different. It is some quite uh, fundamental things have changed from the the base up. You certainly couldn't uh, port over things from Starfinder straight to Pathfinder 2 without doing an l- awful lot of work. And uh, Alex, looking ahead to next year, what's uh, what's catching your attention? Oh god, this is a really complicated question because. I'm still actually struggling to catch up with everything that came out this year because there's been so many games. I think every year it's sometimes it's a bit actually overwhelming of how many games are coming out and I'm so aware that I missed some absolutely cracking games. So I guess my most basic answer is that there is uh, an Everdell expansion called Pearl Book where you go to the bottom of the river to collect pearls and I'm really looking forward to that. And they'll probably feel very nice. <laughs> yes, I'm looking to some more nice and cozy parts of the games. <laughs> so what are you hoping to catch up from from this year that you've kind of missed? I, I mean, you're right. I mean, God, there's even from Essen. Oh, you know, my God. Even just in like the last two months, it's like, oh, God, there's so many games. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the things I'm really gutted that I missed, especially since... I go to board game night and I saw it being played and there was like some jealous person that like came to me that was like a heavy feeling inside me I was like I want to play it but it was rising sun because it looks fantastic and I just I, I just want to play it because it, it seems to have been a game at the moment that there was a splash that just everyone was talking about it and it kind of just passed me by um, there was uh, there's another game Oh, it's actually released recently, but it is a Kickstarter Western Legends. 
maybe. Yes, Yes. so again, I saw that being played, and um, I think sort of Westerns are having a bit of a moment here with uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 coming out as well on the video game front, and this one is kind of all aligned, and again, so there's there's a couple of big, chunky Kickstarter things that came out and just passed me by that I, I would really would like to sit down and properly sink my teeth into. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know if judging by this year and next year, maybe just as busy with releases and probably my catch it up won't work. But <laughs> let's hope. I feel like even now, like Kickstarters for January and February, I've probably had, you know, like a dozen different press releases that are like, oh, we're kickstarting this in January. And it's like, do you have any idea? I have no money after Christmas. Like, <laughs> yeah, <no>. why? <laughs> but it's because every other month is already full of games. Mm. It's just like, oh, man. It, like you say just keeping up keeping up with the kickstarters and then sort of 12 months after that then trying to keep up with the games when they actually come out and you go oh my god i backed this and now i'm unable to play it because i'm already playing four other things yeah and sort of on the kind of less fun and this these are the best games kind of side of the conversation about kickstarter because i just somehow ended up my interest kept getting piqued by certain games and uh, after I played them, I'm like, oh, obviously this was a Kickstarter game that um, then, you know, went to the shops afterwards. And I think because we get so many games every month, there's just releases, releases. There is, I mean, I struggle to name how many games were released this year, but, it, you know, it's in thousands. But it almost feels like now a lot of games that go on Kickstarter feel like they need to have a gimmick to stand out. And it's it's really working against them and I almost feel like everyone needs to calm down a little bit <laughs> and let the games breathe because I don't think people have enough time if if we we you know we do this for fun but we are sort of a little bit over obsessed and about board games and we spend probably a lot of our you know, not probably we definitely spend a lot of our time playing games and researching and looking out for new things and exciting things but for people who don't do that they will just never be able to catch that one great game because there's 10 other games that are vying for your attention and if as someone who does this on a monthly basis and specifically you know does their homework to try to find out what's kind of interesting uh, to shout out to other people are struggling to get through all of this sea of games and other Kickstarter things and just normally releases. I just I just don't know how anyone else does it. So and it's it's I don't think it's been good because yeah, as I said, people just think that you know we need to do something extra that catches someone else's attention where you have a core game that is actually very nice but and you didn't need to do that extra thing that is now kind of annoying in your game and make you make that game cost more anyway just a thought <laughs> i think it's a, a very good point and i mean another thing is you know these kickstarter games that come in huge boxes full of plastic minis and alternate boards and and kind of bits and pieces and and gimmicks um, they take up a lot of space mm. and people only, you know, okay, right, we're all weirdos. We are willing to dev- like devote significant portions of our, our living space to game collections. Most people, if they have, you know, five or six massive Kickstarter monstrosities on their shelf, they're not going to, they're not going to be able to physically put any more in their house. No. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm getting there. So my, my fiance and I, we have a, a bed, one of the kind of lift up beds that has a space underneath. 
and it started out as okay this is this is the board game space this is where they're going to live it was going to force us to curate our collection if not if it doesn't fit under the bed we're not keeping it uh so you know we, we would keep the essentials keep the ones we really love that are going to come out try and keep a mix and then before you know it, if I look behind me on the, the bookshelf, there's uh, the Jumbo edition of Container, there's uh, Giant Killer Robots Heavy Hitters, uh, there's Twilight Imperium 4. Oh my god. Uh, because mm. none of those, those are essentially the size of my bed. Um, <laughs> so they have to end up living on top of a bookcase instead. And so that rule's been broken, and then they just spread from there. It's like the cubes in Pandemic. You get free <laughs> one place. <laughs> and board games start turning up in the kitchen, and you're opening the shower, and there's one there. And uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously I, I don't have quite as many board games as, as most of the other people on the magazine, because I'm mostly on the RPG side of things. And I didn't realise quite how many we'd slowly acquired over the months and years until my wife and I ran a board games night for an or- an organisation that she she works for, and we stuck them in the car and realised that we covered about three very fairly large a uh, uh, trestle tables stacked about two deep with boxes of board games. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, we've actually we've got a lot of board games. And uh, Owen, to to wrap up with you, uh, what are you looking forward to next year? What's going to be kind of bowing your shelves potentially uh, if we're chatting about heavy board games or big boxes at least? Yeah, um, well, I don't know about big uh, games in particular. There are actually a couple of smaller games that I'm quite uh, excited about. There's one that I actually picked up at Essen this year. Um, I believe it's out in uh, in Europe, but not yet in the UK. It's called Lindisfarne. Um, So it's... Ostensibly, it's a, a Viking-themed game where you are kind of sailing around and raiding monasteries and doing all sorts of fun Viking things. Um, but really, it's uh, it feels quite abstract. It's um, essentially it's a, a drafting game. So you're trying to collect cards and combinations that score points and unlock new abilities and all all that good drafting stuff. Um, but layered on top of that, there's a dice game. So you have to roll dice on your turn. You've got to commit them to different areas on a map to uh, to kind of take control of those territories. And then once you've done that, you earn the right to draft cards from them. So it's like drafting with a dice game on top of it. And it is really quick, uh, really pretty simple. And I certainly find it very satisfying at Essen. Um, the other thing that I'm looking forward to getting my hands on, I believe it's coming out in the spring, is called Arial which is uh, a Tetris kind of feeling game. It's a bit like uh, kind of some of the the UV Rosenberg uh, kind of patchwork, patchwork express kind of games where you're laying tiles to kind of uh, complete rows and uh, kind of score points by putting things in different configurations. The interesting thing is that it's a two player game and it comes with a, a plastic turntable kind of device that sits in the middle of the board. So as one of your actions on your turn, you can turn the turntable either to let you pick something in a configuration that you can fit onto your board or to screw your opponent by giving them pieces that they just can't use on their turn. Um, So I thought that was quite clever. Um, I'm also looking forward to uh, a game coming out from Yellow, actually, and it was originally published in Japan, but it's uh, getting a a worldwide worldwide release through Yellow um, called Little Town Builders. Um, and I had a, a kind of sneak peek at it in their, their press area at Essen. Um, it's a, a, a kind of family weight feeling game um, where you and a, a bunch of other players are building a city. Um, you're placing buildings on a board. Um, 
you can move your workers and then they'll trigger whatever buildings they're adjacent to and it means you have to think about well my opponent's placed that here so if i put that there then move a worker over here it means that i can get both of those effects but then they can go there and put that building there and it's just that very kind of um takes quite a simple idea and builds quite complex chains of, of possibilities out of it on your turn and then finally, the thing I'm really looking forward to seeing is uh, the upcoming Fog of Love expansion, which introduces um, some LGBT-specific uh, kind of scenarios and storyline elements and characteristics and uh, and just content into uh, into the game. Uh, I already am a, a big fan of Fog of Love. Um, I love seeing games kind of explore, as I said earlier, these these themes that we don't typically associate with the hobby. Um, and also, kind of as a as a bisexual guy, I'm just Really glad to see uh, some, uh, you know, a designer and a writer of the caliber of, of Nikki Valens coming into the project, and uh, and just exploring this kind of content and just putting it out there into the hobby because I think that games are a fantastic way for people to experience things from a perspective they might not have considered. Fog of Love is pretty incredible already, but uh, the idea of Nikki Valens, as you say, contributing this content that's that really is kind of pushing in these new directions for games is is awesome to see. But uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's our time for part one. Thank you very much for your time, Owen. Yeah, it's, it's great to talk to you guys. And thank you, Alex. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. And thank you, Richard. I uh, thank you. I'll be back for part two of Tabletop Gaming's Game of the Year podcast soon with James Wallace and Dan Jolin.